if you're thinking about selling all or part of your fertility company, you're going to want to listen to this episode. It doesn't matter if you have a practice or a pharmacy or an EMR or a lab manufacturing company, you want to listen to this episode with Richard Groberg. And you'll probably want to listen if you've sold and maybe you're having some seller's remorse. Richard gives his framework for what, how he helps practices and other companies in the fertility field to sell. He's been in the field for many years and in the past three years, he has helped with uh, three major sales. So we talk about those. This is an area that uh, I don't have complete expertise in. I've never bought or sold a fertility company. And so when Richard gives very specific examples, I don't. I might reference a conversation that is particular to an episode if it was publicly discussed on this show. Otherwise, I just just you know de-identify whoever I'm talking about because this is not my area of expertise. It's why I had Richard on. And if you have a different point of view, you're welcome to come on the show too. If there's something that said that you disagree with, tell me what that is and come on the show. The show is an open platform. And anytime I have someone on that talks about some of the, the challenges or problems with private equity, I'm willing to have somebody come on that talks about the pros of private equity. We keep this conversation pretty balanced, but if there is something that you disagree with, you're welcome on to the show. And otherwise, just enjoy this conversation with Richard Groberg. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Mr. Groberg, Richard, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Good morning. Happy to be here with you. You're on because my knowledge of clinical operations goes so far. That's why I have clinical ops guests on and my knowledge of finance goes so far. As for my firm, I try to shade in all of the parts of the Venn diagram where sales and marketing overlap with finance and overlap with ops, but I'll never be a pure ops consultant. I'll never be a pure finance consultant. When I reach the borders of the realm, I need to talk to somebody else. And one of those people is you. And I don't know why it took me randomly bumping into you in Las Vegas to think I need to have Richard on the podcast, but I'm glad I did. And I'm glad you're here. So I want to start our segue into the topic with what if you've been helping fertility centers for a while, but what have you been helping them do specifically in the last two or three years? Well, in the last three years, I've had a couple of different avenues where I've helped fertility businesses. I've worked on three transactions where Fertility, one a fertility practice and two fertility related service businesses have partnered with larger groups and private equity, both to get a partial cash out and also to get access to management resources to build more depth for long term growth. I've also worked with smaller practices that were dealing with selling part of their practice to a doctor, trying to expand. How do I open satellites? How do I buy other practices? And most recently, thanks to you, I assisted a 
fertility doctor who was a minority owner of her practice uncouple from a corporate roll-up group and become an independent practice majority owned by her. So of the three where you helped sell to uh, a private equity group, were they all private equity of those three? Were some of them high net worth individuals? Were they all private equity firms that they were selling to? Or were some private equity firms and some were networks backed by private equity firms? Two of the deals were sales of, of related companies that were related to the fertility industry, specific Practice Highway, EIVF, and Reprotech, to private equity that was interested in the space. I also helped Boston IVF on its parts of its original sale to the British group that was a large fertility network outside the United States, but had no presence in the United States. That one also was ultimately private equity backed, but it was a pretty large sort of fertility roll up. So when you get a call that says, hey, Richard, we're interested in doing this. I'm interested in maybe, maybe I'm interested in exiting or maybe I'm not interested in exiting. I want to just expand and bring in someone to help with that and scale. What is your checklist? Like, how do you start the process to, it's a big elephant. So what is the first bite that you take? Well, the first couple of steps are a little bit like a health exam for a potential fertility patient. Have to understand the nature of the business, its financial performance, its challenges, its growth opportunities, and what the goals are of the current owners. There are cases where owners want to sell and leave. There are cases where owners want to partially sell but need access to resources that they don't have for growth or the depth of management. So the first step is a practice evaluation, not, not a valuation, so to speak, like a formal valuation, but ass assess the health and the goals of, of the practice. After that is the part that most people who've never been through this before don't understand. And forgive the terminology, but I've called it the proctology exam on steroids. Of It's not as simple as you call up somebody and say, I want to sell and you give them a couple of numbers and they shake hands and the deal's done. That's where the process starts. They do an extensive evaluation. They do due diligence. They review your contracts. They review your financial numbers and your, your, your pregnancy rates and other statistics. And before you're prepared to do that, you have to get your house in order. So there's a lot of housekeeping to be done to prepare for that, that extensive painful review to determine is the price we've agreed to in the terms fair? And am I getting what I think I'm getting from the buyer's perspective? A lot of times these companies, because they're private businesses, aren't necessarily prepared for the scrutiny in terms of expenses that you run through the business that most private companies do that might not remain after a transaction. And I can tell you all kinds of fun stories about unusual things. Like the business trip to Hawaii. Shout out to Dr. John Federelli, because I bet everybody wants to visit Dr. Federelli because, well, yeah. that was, a, we took the family and we stayed for two weeks, but it was for visiting Fertility Institute of Hawaii. You know, right. is that what you're talking about? Oh, when you're talking yeah. And about I'll give you some examples or the car that you expensed or the fact that you're paying your mortgage and your utilities and all your vacation expenses. And this is an important concept. I had one scenario where a business thought it was making $3 million a year because that's what he saw in his bottom line. But between 
one-time expenses that aren't recurring and personal expenses running through the business, by the time we got done evaluating it and recasting their financials to properly reflect those non-recurring and what I call private company expenses, he actually was making $4 million a year. And when a buyer is coming in to pay, I'm picking a number for illustrative purposes, 12 times your profits, that extra million dollars of, of, of profitability that you can substantiate and prove, in that particular case, put another $15 million in his pocket. I've jotted that down because I want to come back to that and get some examples from you. I want to try to go in the order that I'm thinking of you dealing with fertility companies that are in this process. You mentioned the first is, is assessing their goals. One goal might be exiting. Another goal might be having financial capital to, to scale or to take over some other business side of the operation. In those two, what are two different paths for those two different goals? Why are those two goals important? Like, why is it important to uh, make a distinction between the two? Well, if I'm buying a fertility practice, and let's just say it's a three doctor practice and two of the doctors want to retire and go away. As the buyer, what I'm buying is not as valuable. And obviously the purchase price is not as high as, look, I, I want to partially cash out, but I can't really compete. I want to expand, but I need money to expand. I, I need access to other resources and I'm going to stay and I'm not going to take 100% cash out the business is now more valuable to the buyer and will garner likely a higher purchase price. The two large transactions I initiated and negotiated for service providers to the industry got a very high valuation because the seller was staying and retained a 30 to 40% ownership stake in the business post-closing. He's got skin in the game. So that's an important distinction. Because at the end of the day, the buyer, if they're buying a fertility practice, the buyer is to a large extent buying the engine and the engine is the doctors running the practice and performing the services. So it makes sense that if the seller's staying, that the business would be worth more, especially if we're talking about providers and the scarcity of REIs. So it seems like if they're staying, then the practice is worth more, but I, one perception that I have, or at least it seems is like the value is in it for those that are exiting. Like, okay, I'm going to, I'm leaving the, the I'm going to retire in a year. So whatever happens to the practice, I guess, is the decision of the people taking it over. I'm cashing out all of my equity. And for, I guess, what is the upside for a, a seller staying as opposed to a long-term hold strategy of their asset and retaining all or more of the equity? Well, let me give you an example. There's a practice in Utah that recently sold to Boston IVF. One of the doctors was retiring, but another doctor who's an outstanding doctor, medical director, who's older but committed to stay for four or five years, and there's another associate there. That practice obviously is more valuable to the buyer because there's continuity there. But to the seller, he's getting now access to this big corporate group who hopefully will provide services better and less expensively than a solo practice can provide. 
give him access to recruiting and hiring other doctors, give him access to the network, and hopefully two to three years out when he is ready to retire, his practice is bigger, it's more profitable, and his ultimate exit will be at a higher valuation. We can now slide into a whole other discussion of whether all the past roll-ups have worked and whether people who've sold into them for some future consideration have benefited or not. The doctors who sold into IntegraMed, it obviously didn't work. Depending where you were in the spectrum of Prelude, maybe it did work, maybe it didn't work. Doctors who participated in Ovation strategy benefited handsomely when Ovation did a second transaction with another private equity group, I guess a year and a half ago, at a higher valuation. They got a second payday that was successful for them. So there's always the promise of that. It's no different than when a smaller practice that wants to get bigger buys another practice and they merge. And now the, 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 the practice that got bought is now part of a bigger practice. Theoretically, that could be worth more to that doctor later down the road than if they just gone on their own. Okay. Well, maybe you can be the tiebreaker in something that Dr. Andrew Meikle and Mark Siegel each said in their respective episodes. And I don't want to paraphrase them too much. So I encourage people to go back to listen to the episodes. If my memory fails a little bit, go back to the episodes, but in each conversation asked about building value up until the end. And if I'm paraphrasing Mark correctly, he felt that it's sort of futile to, to keep adding value to, to the practice right when it's too late. If you know you're going to sell within a year and Meikle said, you know, you should be adding all the way to the end. And from my vantage point, especially when you're looking at that for the case that you just talked about, we got three doctors in any given scenario. I'm not talking about a particular case. We got three doctors, two of them are going to retire. One's going to stay. Well, it seems to me that if those, if that one is going to stay, has a robust brand that's attracting more patients, that has a recruitment pipeline that younger staff want to work at, especially younger docs want to work at, that I would want to keep that flywheel moving and invest in that flywheel until I'm out for the reasons that you talked about. But where do you fall on the, the debate of it's too late to add value if you know you're going to sell in a year versus keep doing it all the way to the end? I, I think that you never stop making your practice a better practice because a deal might not go through. But I also believe, and I, I have a very close friend in the veterinary business who's been through a number of roll-ups. He operates an independent practice. Everybody wants to buy him. And he's like, oh, I'm three years out. When I'm, when I'm a year and a half out, I need to start preparing so that when I go through that proctology exam on steroids, I'm prepared for the process. But up until the day you close, you always risk something negative happening that gives the buyer an opportunity to renegotiate. So you constantly want to be making your practice more and more attractive unless you're selling and walking away. But even then, again, one of the mistakes people make, small practitioners in lots of businesses, is they get so focused on the sale process, they lose focus on their business and suddenly something gets delayed and your volume is dropped by 20% and you're not as profitable and the buyer comes in at the last minute and goes, you know, things have changed a little bit. We're renegotiating the price. Or I'm having a hard time attracting the doctor you need because your practice 
isn't doing so well. I mean, if Griff, if you're walking into a to a dance and you're looking for a date, I mean, up to the very minute you walk in, you want to make sure that your hair is bright and your beard is straight and everything looks good. And there's nothing that gives a negative impression. So that's my view. So I want to ask you about the proctology exam. And if I'm doing Mark Siegel's argument injustice, please listen to episode 100. And Mark, if I'm still doing it injustice, you're welcome back on to clarify at any time. Let's talk about the proctology exam, Richard. What does this involve? You, you mentioned that as the second step, but you said before the financial house has to come in order. So let's talk about what that means in order to be prepared for the due diligence. Well, in a lot of industries, not just the fertility industry, private businesses don't necessarily keep their financials expecting third-party scrutiny. They run expenses through the business that are personal. They may not be tracking non-recurring or one-time expenses. They may be expensing things that in a most setups are things that should be capitalized, but for tax purposes, oh, we bought this piece of equipment, let's all expense it in year one. So that, that data needs to be cleaned up so it's ready for the review from a perspective of a roll-up group or private equity who's going to have banks and financing sources and investment committee approvals to understand the financials. And that all needs to tie to your contracts, your ownership structure. So all those documents and contracts and historical data and financials need to be- Meeting employment agreements, contracts with vendors. Absolutely. And again, most people, not out of any fault, they're operating- private businesses, they never expected this. And all of a sudden, someone's at their doorstep saying, I want to buy you for 12 times your profits. They're not prepared for this. And frankly, they don't have the time often to stop and get prepared for it. And one of my other favorite expressions, if you've never been through this before, you don't know what you don't know about the process that's about to descend on you. It can be consuming and overwhelming, and you need to be ready for what's about to come. Because again, it's not so simple as, oh, you're making $2 million a year. I'll write you a check for $24 million. I'll see you at the closing table in a week. So with regard to the expenses that you said detract from the bottom line that are necessary for that against a multiple are worth that much more if they're added back on. So is your advice to not take any of those as business expenses or is there another way of accounting for it? There, there, I don't want to give away all the secrets, but there are ways to, to track it or go back and recast it so that you can track it. And like, for example, again, when a private equity group or a roll-up group buys you, they have an independent accounting firm that does what's called a quality of earnings review which is like getting a 360 body scan. And if you can demonstrate that, hey, these are the expenses that were personal or one time, and here are the receipts, and I can run a report that shows them, and I can provide you the backup to prove it, and in the contract, they won't continue afterwards, then you can get credit for it. When I was in the animal hospital business, there were practices that didn't record all their cash but they have a little piece of paper that would show all the cash that got deposited in the account that never went through their POS system or accounting system. If you can't prove it, the buyer is not going to pay for it. So they're different. I'm not suggesting that you don't do it, 
but you have to be able to track it and prove it if you want credit for it in a transaction. I want you giving away all the secrets, but you do have to give me a little bit of free consulting right now. Here's, here's an example. So one thing is because I'm not married yet, will be soon, but I'm not yet. I don't end. I've rented and in, in living in different cities. I haven't itemized my own tax return. So when I do charitable contributions, I don't have anything to deduct on my own tax return. So one of the charities that I support is Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos. It's dear to my heart. So many people listening have donated uh, when I've asked them and, and I'm so grateful for that. And so one of the things that I've done, you know, for example, is I will have Fertility Bridge sponsor a, a gala and, and it will be Fertility Bridge advertising. We'll get the logo on the page and in the pamphlet. And I will invite fertility doctors, fertility clients to the gala with me. So they're at my table and that's business networking. I don't know though, that it's something, it's not something you, you would do if someone else was running the business though, right? Somebody else mm -hmm. would pick some different kind of average. So is the advice that I categorize that somehow yes. differently? The, the, the advice is if you know now that at some point in the future, you're going to be borrowing money, selling, partnering, track it, take the extra time to track it, categorize it, even if you put it, like if it's a personal expense and you use QuickBooks, put a class code in for P so you can always run a report that everything that's P for personal. So if you think now that you're going to have to do this going forward, when I work with new companies, if I know they're going to be raising money, selling at some point, there are things we do from an accounting and tracking standpoint that anticipates the proctology exam a couple of years out so that you don't have to double back and say, okay, Mr. or Miss Bookkeeper, go back and find every personal expense that you've run through the business and repost it with a code so that when we get to that point, you can prove it. There's a book called uh, Built to Sell. And I, I haven't read the book, so I'm not necessarily recommending, but if the audience is curious enough, we can link in the show notes. The book's called Built to Sell. But I believe the value proposition is to build your business as though you're going to sell it, regardless of whether you do or not, that you, that you, it is a business that someone would want to buy. And that seems like a tenet of that, having your mm -hmm. books categorized in such a way. It's a good book. And, and again, that is good advice. If you've anticipated it, you will save a tremendous amount of time, aggravation, money, and not getting distracted from continuing to manage your business by having to double back and figure all this stuff out at a later date when you're ready. When you're helping fertility companies get their financial house in order, what are some of the main booby traps or the most common booby traps that you see when you're, when you're taking the PL against the income statement, or excuse me, when you're taking the income statement against the balance sheet, what are some of the common things that jump out to you like, ah, eh, this isn't right or something needs to be fixed? Well, it's the personal expenses and the non-recurring expenses that aren't tracked. It's, I haven't reconciled my bank statement in a year and my books aren't up to date. It's, it's again, in the cannabis business where I've done some work and what I used to be in the animal hospital business, it's not recording all the business I did. The other area in the fertility business is some doctor owners pay themselves big salaries and show little profits. Some take little salaries and then have all the profits. Well, if you're selling 
to a corporate group, you're going to negotiate what you're getting paid for your work as a doctor post-closing. So that's one of the other things that you have to have an understanding of and then recast your numbers to accurately reflect the past as if it was the future post-closing. I want to talk more about the, the due diligence and the, and the proctology exam, but I remember what I wanted to ask you about when we were talking about goals and that was had to do with earnout. So is it simply the case of one goal is, well, I'm just ready to leave the business or, and one is, well, I'm going to stay is the case of, even if you're going to sell, is there still an earnout, and how long is that typically that I need to stay for two years or I, or a year or three years and how much of my buyout is tied to that earnout and how much should I expect to get in cash? Can you talk about earnout for a little bit? Let me address that first from the, the buyer's perspective. If I'm buying a fertility practice, unless it's a large multi-doctor practice, a big part of the value is the producers. And if they're cashing out and leaving, it's worth less. So most buyers want one form or another of incentive. I call it a golden handcuff to incentivize and ensure the continued performance of the drivers of the practice, whether it's the younger doctors who are taking over or the existing doctors. So if, and by the way, I have another one of my favorite expressions there. That's why there are 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins. Well, every roll-up group has a different way in which they like to do it. Do they want you to own part of your practice or have a profit participation or a percentage of the revenues above a base or a percentage of the profits of a base? Or do you have stock in the, in the parent company or a little of all of the above? You know, Ovation, you still own part of your lab and you own stock in the parent. One way or another, the practice is more valuable to the buyer if the seller still has an incentive to grow the practice and grow the practice profitably. For the bot, so for the buyer, the seller's standpoint, if the seller is selling and staying, he wants to participate fairly. Again, if I if I sell my if my business is worth sixty million dollars and I keep 40%, I sell, I take a partial cash out, and I keep 40%. I want that 40% to be more valuable later on. That was part of the story of every roll-up group. Ovation is the only one that's even partially worked where there's been a profitable partial cash out for others. Obviously, Integramed didn't work, and people's, including mine, and residual interest was worth zero. So you want the interest of the buyer and seller to be aligned one way or another so that business becomes more valuable. And when I eventually get my next cash out, it's for a higher number than today, because that's why I'm selling to you and letting you tell me what to do and putting your services in place and helping me grow, focus, do more. None of that matters if you're not improving my quality of life and or making my residual interest more valuable later on. 
We're talking about improving efficiencies to increase the value of a fertility company. When I think of improving efficiencies at a fertility practice, I immediately think of Engaged MD. Whether you're going to sell or not, we talk about how important it is to add value and increase efficiency to the end to improve the quality of work for your employees and the experience for your patients. That's Engaged MD. If you go to Engaged MD's website, you'll see at the bottom of the homepage is like a CNN ticker of different client testimonials that they have saying, we took what used to be a 90 minute consult and turned it into a 50 minute phone call. That's because Engaged MD is taking so much of the headache and the manual one-offs that your staff has to do that is not efficient for your staff and not effective for your patients and helps to scale that with their comprehensive art e-learn library, their embedded knowledge checks, their actionable patient comprehension insights, compliance tracking, automation, automated patient reminders, video replay. This is just taking the manual labor that isn't efficient for your team to do and scales it to patients through software so that you can customize the time that you have with your patients and that experience to be just about them so that they're educated prior to treatment so they have true informed consent so that you can deliver what should be delivered in the way that only you can and they're coming in with a much better foundation go to engagedmd.com slash irh and you'll get 25% off of your implementation fee by mentioning that you heard them on Inside Reproductive Health or you heard them from Griffin Jones. And please do that if you're doing business with them, let them know that you heard them on the show because it's one of the things that allows us to provide you with more content and to keep giving you more resources like this episode. And we wanna do a whole lot more. So please mention that and take advantage of what EngageMD has to offer because it's one of the simplest, largest upside moves that you can make for your practice in 2022. Now back to the show. So for, for how long? Because owning 40% of a company that one built is different than owning 100% of the company that one built and having all of the say. And I suspect that this is where a lot of the problems could come from is, that, well, I don't own the whole thing anymore. I, but I'm still on the hook for, uh, I'm still on the hook for listening to what the new leadership or the new ownership has to say. And I do have a financial stake in, in retaining this 40%, I guess, how long does it like when, when somebody sells partial, how long does that stay for? Every scenario is unique. Depends on whether a doctor is 40 years old or 60 and, and what the goal is of the buyer. So again, every situation is different and unique. I mean, but understand that every private equity group, every buyout group, every roll-up group, no matter what they tell you, their goal is for them to either sell to somebody else at a higher price or go public. So is there that, typically, is there some sort of remaining buyout agreement? I don't even know if you would call that a buyout agreement within the new agreement that, okay, if, if this isn't happening, the remaining partner has to sell their 40% or are, are those typically in yes. agreements? There has to be some mechanism for an ultimate exit. 
when a doctor retires or dies, what happened? No different than in a group private practice, whether it's HRC or one of the other groups, you know, when someone's ready to leave, retire or die, there has to be a mechanism to buy them out and for other people to get their equity. Do you have to have a mechanism for the evaluation in that agreement as yes. well? So that, you know, well, we say it's worth this. Well, I think we you know, grew the value to this. And now my 40% is worth Y when you're saying it's worth X. Is that evaluation in the agreement? Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's no different in any kind of equity. This morning, I was on the phone with someone who was offering me equity to join a board of directors. And I said, well, if you're issuing me equity in every single year, how do we value it? So you have to mutually agree on a valuation methodology, whether it's you have an outside appraisal or it's the last transaction that raised money. But yes, you have to you have to button up every open issue so that both sides know what the future holds. Okay. So you talked about the the roll-ups that have happened in private equity. Can you first how do you define a roll-up? Is it just any network consolidating? I guess consolidating in in this instance is self-defined because they are moving more practices into their network or company of practices. First, can you define roll-up and then we'll talk about some yes. of the things that people have to consider. My understanding of roll-up and roll-out is a roll-up is rolling in any business, is rolling up other businesses in the same industry. A roll-out is a strategy which could be part of a roll-up where you're opening de novo locations. So you might have a roll-up rolling out satellites. You might have, you know, there have been some models out there that open new locations, you know, Kindbody, which is opening new locations. That's a rollout, but there, I know they also may be buying practices. So that is a roll-up and it happens. There've been roll-ups in the veterinary industry, all over healthcare. Now in the cannabis industry, businesses are being rolled up. So what are some of the considerations that not just fertility practices, but any company in the fertility field should consider if they're going to be a part, if they're being approached by a larger organization that wants to roll them up into their portfolio? So if I'm a seller, it starts with what are my goals? Am I looking to cash out and leave? Do I want to stay three years or five years? You know, this Oregon transaction that recently closed, they were looking to be part of a bigger group and have access to resources and have a partial cash out. But it's not, this is a very important point. It's not just the price and the terms. If you're going to be there the morning after operating your practice that you built and you've run, but now somebody else has bought you and owns you, you have to understand that you, they've now bought the right to make some decisions, to have veto power, to insist that you do certain things certain ways. And once you get past price and terms, what the relationship is going to be like the morning after, what are you going to insist that I do? What are you, what am I not going to do? What's your strategy for providing value added to my practice become as important, if not more important than thank you. You valued my practice at 60 million. I'll take my check and go home. And the, the this industry, unfortunately, to date is littered with not overly successful roll-up strategies that have had ultimate exits. But why? 
There are a lot of new groups coming in. I'll, I'll address that in a second. There are a lot of new groups coming in. There's a lot of private equity money saying, wow, this industry is growing. Let's do here what we did in other industries. You ask, why hasn't it worked? I'll, I'll give you my personal opinion. The driving force of these practices, the doctors, whether it's in the animal hospital industry where I used to be or the fertility industry or other industries. And when you buy a practice that is entrepreneurial and self-owned, you're immediately, no matter what anybody says, de-incentivizing partially the driver of the business. That's part one. Part two is the roll-up only makes sense if the roll-up group creates economies of scale. Can we purchase cheaper? Can we negotiate third-party payer contracts? Can we do things that manage for your practice better and or less expensively than you can as an owner operator? And to date, I don't wanna talk specifics, to date, there, I don't believe there are many real success stories of people look in the mirror. Now, there are unbelievably fabulous practices like Shady Grove and others, Boston IVF and others, that, and CNY and Hunting HRC that within their own group have expanded, have centralized certain services, have provided value added to their doctor partners. But when you start getting 5, 10, 15, 20 of them across multiple states that aren't born within a central strategy, name me one that's worked in the no, long term. I don't know that I can yet, but I would suppose maybe the jury's still out. And I suppose if we had some of them on, they would say that it is working right now. And so yeah, the jury's out. And I hope that there are some success stories, because I think that if you can build better, if you can do the accounting better, if you can centralize buying, if you can do that for a solo practitioner and let them focus on running their location in the practice of medicine, it does create value for that practice. So in theory, it should work. It sounds like you got a strong point of view on this. And I'm wondering why haven't they been able to improve the economies of scale? You said that's one of the things that they have to do is their value proposition. And I've got, I don't know that this is true in the fertility field, but I did observe something back. My first job out of college, Richard, was selling radio ads. Just here's the phone book, kid, go, go slang some radio ads, hundred percent commission. I did that for five years in my early and mid twenties. And I noticed that it wasn't the McDonald's and the Verizons and the Geico's that got the deals because if the large companies, Citadel, Clear Channel, Cumulus, Entercom gave those companies deals that would just obliterate their revenue. It was the additional people that got, it was, you know, your local driving school, your local jeweler, the scrap dealer. Those were the people that I could cut any, I could sell five bucks in 08, 09 during the recession. It's a particularly egregious example, but I could sell, you know, things that were, should have been a $200 spot for $30 and and I could sell the evening spots for five bucks a piece and mm -hmm. give away the overnight spots and all, all of that type of thing. And so I don't know that that's happening in the fertility field. So one question is, is it? Let me double back because I need to amplify. At the end of the day, the corporate group needs to be able to generate value above and beyond the cost of its infrastructure. 
So, and I remember back when I was in the animal hospital business and we had 15 locations, the cost of getting up to 15 of a corporate infrastructure was very high. When you went from 15 to 30, you didn't need a lot of in incremental infrastructure. So you have to have enough infrastructure to provide value added to pay for that infrastructure and create value for the practices. Otherwise, you're just adding overhead that doesn't create value. The other side of the equation, and I recently worked with a solo practice that was minority owned by a doctor that was part of a roll-up group where the question was, are the fees we're paying to the roll-up group worth the services we're getting? And the answer was no. Now, we have to replace some of those services, but they were doing billing collections, they were doing accounting, they were running the call center, and the doctor, right or wrong, thought that she could do it better, less expensively for herself. If that's the case, then the roll-up fails. But if the roll-up can provide those services more efficiently, less expensively than the practice can, and add value to the practice in a way that creates incremental value above the cost of that corporate infrastructure. I mean, IntegraMed drowned under its corporate infrastructure, among other reasons why IntegraMed failed. So is it because, is, is it sometimes because there's redundancy or is it simply because it, it, the inefficiency and expense? I, I could do, I could be doing this myself more cheaply and or cheaper and, and more easily. Again, at the end of the day, if you choose to outsource something in your business to a third party, it's got to be less expensive than what you're doing, free you up to do other things, which will add value more than the cost, or it's not worth doing. So if a fertility doctor can let somebody else manage his billing and accounting, and it frees he or she up, and the cost of having a third party doing it is less than having your own person doing it, well, then it may be worth it. But if not, there's no value added because at the end of the day, it has to create $1 more value than the cost of doing it. You mentioned that IntegraMed was kind of the, the pinnacle example of all of this. What are things that people should be looking for to make sure that they're not in a similar situation right now or you know if you could have gone back in time three years or or however long i suppose to have people look out for things that that happened in that situation what would you advise people that could be in a similar situation right now let me i'll give the example on another industry years ago when i was in the animal hospital industry there was a group that had raised money at what i call stupid valuations based on their promise of we're going to buy 100 hospitals and we're going to add value to them blah 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 and they wanted us to sell our group to them for a combination of cash and stock in their business. And they were going to pay us an artificially high valuation. But most of the pro pro proceeds we were going to receive was in their stock that was artificially inflated. So my partner then used to say, what makes us think that the stock we're getting at 15 times earnings is going to be worth that five years down the road, it doesn't make sense. Now, sometimes fundamentals don't matter, but 
fundamentally, if you're taking highly inflated stock in whatever business, and then the other is you have to believe in the strategy of the buyer that they'll be successful. Otherwise, again, you know, my partners and I took seven figures of stock in Integramin. It was ended up being worth zero. You know, had we gone back, you know, if we didn't believe their model, if we didn't believe that they were going to be successful, why would you make a bet in them by taking their, their artificially inflated stock? So you got to believe who you're getting in bed with. Again, as I said earlier, especially if you're going to wake up the morning after and have to work with them. When you're talking about, in this case, you're talking about inflated stock, but previously you were talking about the multiple of EBITDA that sometimes people are selling, selling at. Use the example of 12. And two or three years ago, I was, one, I was with one of my earlier clients and I told them that some people are selling at 12 times EBITDA. And they said, no, that's not true, Griffin. They, they did not believe me. I said, it's absolutely true. I'm not saying it's true for everybody. The only times I've seen that high is through like very large groups selling to strategic buyers and, you know, and having an established brand and clearly a system in place. But I think four is like the lowest I've, I've ever seen. What's common nowadays? Well, the market's gotten hot again because there are groups that have emerged with private equity backing that believe that, again, they can buy. So big groups that have a brand that have multiple doctors seem to be selling at double digit multiples in some combination of cash, stock, or announced notes. But again, if you're a one doctor or two doctor practice, you're not as worth as much to the buyer. So those multiples can be four or less. Because again, if you're the buyer and you're buying a one doctor practice, you're taking an enormous risk. And that's why when I work with smaller practices that are thinking about exiting, well, you need to get multiple doctors, you need to open satellites, you need to buy people, you need to get bigger so that you're more valuable and perceived as more valuable to the next roll-up group that wants to come in your market and expand their market share. I want to do a whole episode on a topic that I think where a lot of upside is if there is a single doc group, I actually think that's one of the areas where somebody coming out of fellowship or a young associate doc that either leaving academic practice or they were at somewhere else for two years, that can make sense for them if it's done right. Because if that younger doc can bring in, that younger doc is in a better position to recruit other younger docs and they have more time to do it. And so it, it, somebody vehemently disagreed with me when I was talking about this with them at MRSI. So I want to know if you disagree. They think there's too much risk in that, but I see huge upside. If you find the right guy, I recently worked last year with a doctor in the Southeast great practitioner, great practice. He's getting older. He's a solo doctor. He had a young doctor working for him. And to sell that doctor equity on the cheap may seem like you're giving it away, but two, three years from now, when they're ready, when he's ready to sell or retire, his practice is significantly more valuable because it's a multi-doctor practice that's reduced the risk. You and I have a friend in Florida we almost did business with a couple of years ago. In the last year, he's hired two doctors. He's opened satellites. He's made himself, instead of being worth three to four times, he's worth six to seven or eight times now when he's ready to cash out. So, okay. So we're looking at this, you know, if you could be looking at under four, if you're a single 
dot group and if you don't have a brand and you don't have things in order if you do have a really robust brand you have a lot of docs you're you're talking uh well in the double digits of multiple so i'm still curious like do you think my economies of scale hypothesis applies to the fertility field, giving the local businesses the deals, but less so to the McDonald's and the and the Geico? Is that one of the things that's hindering economies of scale? I don't know that this is happening at all in the fertility field, but I do see when I look at people in the industry side's target list, their target lists are all the same. It's these independent groups that still have multiple doctors that are still the it, the the biggest in their market, if it's a mid market, or at least the third biggest in a large market, like these are the ones that everybody is courting. Right. And so it seems to me like they ha- would have, you know, more purchase power, but I could yes. be wrong. Well, first of all, I want to comment about that. The law of supply and demand is such that if there are a handful of roll-up groups with a b- bunch of private equity money saying, we need to go after this industry that drives up multiples because the law of supply and demand is that there are multiple companies bidding on the same handful of larger independent practices, which is why multiples are escalating now. And I don't think most of these practices in the long run are worth 10 to 12 times. So I would say it's a great time to be a seller. There are some economies of scale. There theoretically should be some efficiencies of consolidation. I've seen aspects of it work, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that a smart solo practitioner can't negotiate the same deals, but you only have so, so many hours in the day. It's why practices hire practice managers, because that way the doctor can go back and practice medicine, deal with the patients and staff, and leave someone else to do what they do better, if they can do it better, and if they can do it less expensively than the value they're creating. If it costs $2 to, to make one, it's not worth it. But if it costs $2 to create five, well, then it's worth it. What about, I guess, if you're, you know, in your early 40s and you own maybe half of a group or a third of a group and you've got uh, one or two partners and then there's a young associate doc in there, uh, is, I, I guess, I'm st- we, I, I asked you a little bit about the, the long-term hold strategy and, and i briefly read a paper from HBR Yale's paper about that holding a whole long-term hold strategy is more profitable in the long run. When is that the more viable option? If it ever is is to just say, you know what, I'm going to own this thing for outright. I'm going to slowly increase the value and be hundred percent or majority equity owner. There's no one right answer, but if I'm a 35 to 40 year old physician in this industry or the animal hospital industry, another industry, and I believe in myself, and I believe in growing the practice, and I have the wherewithal to do it, unless I'm lacking something that a corporate group can give me, or I want to hedge my bet, why would I sell now? And, you know, if, if you've convinced me that I should sell, and the residual interest is going to be worth much more three years out, I'll answer the question by telling you a story. Years and years and years ago, when I was buying animal hospitals, I met this guy in Westchester who had the largest animal hospital in Westchester. He was making a ton of money. And frankly, he was underreporting about a million dollars a year. So he was really making a ton of money. And he said, 
why would I sell my practice now at five times my earnings, even if I add back the cash when I'm 40 years old? And I said, there's no reason for you to until you're ready to retire, die, or you told me you eventually want to move to Arizona with your girlfriend and become a professional illustrator. And he went, you're right. Thank you for being honest with me. Two years later, he called me and said, I'm ready to go. So, you know, there was no reason for him to sell. He had plenty of money. He had plenty of growth opportunity. There was nothing that anybody could provide him that would add more value. Now, if someone comes in and says, I'll sell you it, I'll buy you at 15 times your earnings. That means it would take 15 years for you to earn enough to, to, to be equal. It actually does come down to partially a mathematical equation. And then, you know, our friend in Texas who sold his software company reached a point where valuations were so high and he needed management help that it made sense. But until it made sense, it didn't. Do you want to talk about some of the principles where it, you, you've done the deal and then you find out it didn't make sense and now you're unrolling up? Oh boy. I know we've only got a few minutes. There are a lot of cases where the roll-up group didn't perform the way it said it was going to perform and all those things I talked about didn't make sense. And, and especially for smaller practices where it doesn't make sense for the roll-up group to have a one doctor practice, people have cut the umbilical cord and uncoupled. The, the complexity there is if the corporate group has been doing your billing, your collections, your accounting, your new patient generation, doing all kinds of things for you, you better be prepared to take that back in and manage it yourself and not disrupt you doing what Stephen Covey calls keep the most important thing, the most important thing and practicing medicine and running your practice. There've been lots of examples of where it's done. And it is because the corporate group didn't live up to the promises in the eyes of the seller. They didn't get me more doctors. They didn't grow me. The services they're providing aren't worth what I'm paying for it. You know, I, I can't get anything done. So cut the umbilical cord, let me do it myself. Richard, this interview has been so much value for the audience. I think they're going to get a ton of value. I want to do a live event with you in 2022 where people can jump on and ask questions. Are you open to that? I'd love to. Uh, you, you can tell I've been in this industry since 2001. I have a passion and a personal interest in the industry. You know, I've got lots of friends in the industry. This is an area where if I can answer questions and help doctors through these different processes, I, I'd love to help. There are some episodes that I go back and listen to because I need to get all of that information. I can already tell that I'm going to be in early 2022 at the gym listening to this episode. So hello, future Griff, while you're listening to this. Richard, how would you want to conclude about the topic of selling a company in the fertility field, whether it's a practice or not, any, whether it's a pharmacy or an EMR company or a lab manufacturer, how would you want to conclude? Prepare for the process and make sure you have the resources to go through it, to understand what you're getting into and to live with what you're going to face the morning after. Richard Groberg, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. We'll link to the places where you can find Richard. And where are some of those places, Richard? We'll link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. Where, where can people get a hold of you? Through my LinkedIn is the easiest place. 
or, or Richard Groberg at Outlook.com. Connect with Richard and Richard, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thank you, Griff. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Inside Reproductive Health, sponsored by Engaged MD. For technology to streamline patient education and informed consent, visit engagedmd.com slash IRH for 25% off your implementation fee. That's engagedmd.com slash IRH.